Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Thank you, Greg, and uh, others of you here from Gideon's International. Great to have you here as uh, we hear about that valuable ministry. And I want to just mention that there will be a basket on, in, uh, in the back there on the table if you'd like to contribute to uh, the ministry of Gideon's International. I encourage you to do that. Also should just uh, mention, uh, I don't think Pastor Ryan mentioned this. I don't always listen to all the announcements when he gives them. So uh, we, we have the Bible School Choir that is going to be here um, on March 8th, and um, just a reminder to you, uh, we, we need a lot of host homes. And so even if, you, you know, you usually think, oh, somebody else will do that, um, they might not. We, we need enough to host uh, 37 youth plus some other additional adults. And, and so there is a sign-up sheet in the um, fellowship hall. I encourage you to um, consider having a couple of them stay in your home, and you will be blessed. If you were uh, put in charge of arranging a plan to bring a relatively uh, unheard message to all of the world over 2,000 years ago, and you had three years to prepare some people for that assignment, how do you think you would have gone about it? Who would you have recruited? What kind of people would you have picked? And, and how many of them would you have chosen to work with and prepare for that assignment? You wouldn't have had internet or even TV or radio to rely on. Um, there would have been no modern technology to speed up the process, just human beings who, for the most part, uh, traveled to that point by beast or on foot. I, I find it absolutely amazing to consider the master's plan in this area. It, it, it seems from a human perspective to be so weak and unassuming that, that one would hardly imagine it could even work at all. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ had a perfect plan that would turn the world upside down with the message of the gospel as the ones that he trained told of their master wherever they went. And, and so we're going to look at that plan today. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to be considering that and how you and I fit into that plan as well. And I invite you to look in the Gospel of Luke today at Luke chapter 5, um, verses 1 through 11. And uh, would you stand in reverence to God's word? My uh, remote is not uh, advancing here for some reason. There we go. Back up. There. Okay. Um, Luke chapter 5, first of all, and then some in chapter 6 as well. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, 
He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought up their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And then in chapter 6, um, beginning of verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as we take a look at these disciples uh, today and in the days ahead here, Lord, that, that you would inspire us with how you can use uh, any individual whose heart is right with you and, and willing to serve you. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so who were these uh, 12 individuals called to be the disciples? I'm going to give you kind of an overview today and, and also then invite you to come on Wednesday nights as we look each week and focus in on one or more of these disciples and, and learn about them and about the master that called them. Um, our Lenten theme for this year is, is the 12 men and their master. And so let's look at those 12 who were called. First thing I notice about them is that they seem kind of unlikely leaders. There were two or possibly three sets of brothers. There were the sons of John, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. There were the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And then there were the sons of Alphaeus, uh, James the Less and Matthew. Now, that's an interesting one because both of them are described in some place in Scripture as sons of Alphaeus, but there's no biblical count that puts them together like their brothers. And so we really don't know. Maybe there are two Alphaeuses. As we think of these disciples, though, uh, four of them were relatively uneducated fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Two of them, the sons of Zebedee, had a rather ambitious mother who, who wanted her boys to have the places of honor when Jesus set up his kingdom, um, with one on his right and the other on the left. And, and, and that caused some internal conflicts uh, among the disciples later on. Charlie Toms is going to be sharing about that one of these next Wednesdays um, as we look at James and John. Another one of the fishermen was awfully impulsive by nature. And this would get, them to open his mouth, get him to open his mouth sometimes when maybe he shouldn't have. And it resulted in him also doing things like lashing out at somebody with a sword. Caleb Dahl is going to share about Simon Peter coming up. And his brother Andrew, Craig Herner, is going to share about this week on Wednesday night. Then there was this tax collector who cooperated with the Romans, Matthew, also known as Levi. And this cooperation with the Romans made him looked by most of the Jews as one of the lowliest of the sinners because they, they did what they could to take advantage of people with the taxes. And, and yet Jesus called 
this guy to be a disciple as well. We kind of wonder what he was thinking. Um, Corey Trick's going to be sharing about Matthew. And then in contrast to Matthew, the tax collector, we have somebody that was on the opposite political extreme, and that was a, a political zealot who despised the Romans, Simon the Zealot. Um, and the zealots were, were militant about getting rid of the Roman rule and, and eager to have a Messiah come along that would free the Jews from Roman control and set up a new kingdom on earth. And, and yet Jesus called both of those guys with opposite political extremes um, to be disciples together. Brad Dunham's excited about telling us about Simon and, and the zealots. Some of the 12 were skeptical about Jesus' abilities at first. Uh, some, well, one of them doubted whether anything good could come out of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. That was Nathaniel. Several of them had doubts about Jesus' power at times. Uh, Glenn Urlacher is going to tell us uh, more about doubting Thomas. And, and then there was this one that Jesus put in charge of the money. Um, for the group, and, and he was a pilferer, you might say, and, and even became a traitor and was willing to then sell out Jesus for money. Pastor Ryan will be sharing on that uh, on Mon Monday, Thursday. As we think about this group, then I have a quote here from a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman, and he says this, by any standard of sophisticated culture then and now, they, they would surely be considered as a rather ragged aggregation of souls. One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them. They were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and had all the prejudices of their environment. In short, these men selected by the Lord to be his assistants represented an average cross-section of the lot of society in their day, not the kind of group one would expect to win the world for Christ. And yet Jesus saw in these simple men the potential of leadership for the kingdom, and they were indeed unlearned and ignorant according to the world standard, but they were teachable, willing to confess their need, sincere, yearning for God, and fed up with the hypocrisy. And, and such men, pliable in the hands of the master, could be molded into a new image. And then Coleman says this, Jesus can use anyone who wants to be used. Well, that's what he was looking for then, and that is what he's looking for today. And, and so this question comes to us then. Are we willing to let him call ordinary men and women like you and I? From what I know of our congregation here, a significant percentage of us are blue-collar workers or farmers or people that grew up on a farm. There aren't a lot of us that have fancy titles behind our names. Not many of us are very rich or famous. But the master can still use us if we're, as individuals, willing to be used if we're teachable and moldable in the master's hands. Some of you might look around and think of some other churches in the area that, and, and think, well, we're kind of small compared to that big Lutheran church or Baptist or E-Free or non-denominational <laughs> church in Fargo-Moorhead. Um, you know, there are lots of them. They have, it seems they have lots more things going. But take a look at Jesus' plan. And how did he set out to impact the world? Are we willing to let him get a hold of our congregation of believers in a small town outside of Fargo-Moorhead and see how he can use us to impact the world? The 12 Jesus called to be his disciples seemed unlikely leaders. They also were a small group. Um, <clears throat> now, why did you Jesus select just 12 disciples? 
He had many more that followed him from place to place. The, the text that we just read spoke of crowds of people pressing in to listen to him. Multitudes of people coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And with such popularity, why didn't Jesus just hang out with the multitudes, teaching and, and healing as many as would listen and receive what he offered? Look at the impact that could have made. If he taught all 5,000 at once, right? Why didn't he do it that way? It's the same reason that pastors shouldn't spend all of their time up here, preaching and teaching in a large assembly. This is an important part of our church. Um, Sunday morning worship and sermons from the Word of God are essential to pastoral ministry. However, some of the most important ministry happens in individual interaction and in time in uh, small groups of a few people. Like Pastor Ryan meeting for Bible study these days with some high school guys on Monday mornings before school. And you know, that kind of small group discipleship isn't dependent on your pastors. It's happening regularly in our men's and women's fellowship groups, in our Wednesday night ministries, and, and lately with couples coming together in this Art of Marriage series. Jesus found that the group he called to be his disciples needed to be small enough to work effectively with them. He couldn't train the multitudes in a three-year period to all be leaders that would continue his ministry after he left the earth, but he could train a small group of men. And I'm convinced that we all need more than just being part of a multitude. We, we need the interaction and the fellowship and accountability and growth that comes in smaller groups that are committed to helping each other grow in our faith. And that's why I won't stop encouraging that each person that worships here with us would look for some ways to be involved in, in regularly meeting with one or more other believers who can encourage them in their walk with the Lord and opportunities to serve him and, and who can pray with him and support them in the challenges of life. That was Jesus' plan. Spend a lot of time with the 12. Have you noticed that it, besides that though, within that group of 12, there was a smaller group of, of three, an inner circle of three. It was Peter, James, and John that became especially close to the master. They had some unique experiences with Jesus others didn't have. It was these three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Moses and Elijah and saw Jesus in all of his glory transfigured before them. They, they saw and they never forgot those things. And, and Peter wrote about that years later as proof of the deity of Christ. And these three were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed and as he sweat drops of blood. And, and though they fell asleep that time from exhaustion, yet they seem to have caught more of who Jesus was and what his mission was than the rest of the 12. The more concentrated the size of the group being taught, the greater opportunity for effective instruction. One of the things that I've made a priority in most of my years here is meeting with men in triads and quads, groups of three and four, following the example then of Jesus and of the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys to spend time with a few. And I have seen the Lord use those times to grow men in, in the relationship with Jesus and his church. There's a group of 12, though, and that they spent most of the three years traveling then from place to place with Jesus and seeing him in all kinds of situations and becoming prepared to take over his ministry after he was gone. They truly were the priority focus of his ministry. 
And he chose 12 of them whom he also called apostles, um, which means sent out ones. And in the Gospel of Mark, it says that he chose them that they might be with him. And we're more on that next week as uh, we look into that in the Gospel of Mark. He chose these 12 to give the majority of his time. And he did so, though, without neglecting the masses. They, he still taught them, as in this text, it tells us about him teaching from the boat and, and he healed them, drove out evil spirits. And, and uh, though he did what he could to help the multitudes, he devoted himself primarily to a few men rather than the masses in order that the masses could at last be saved. That was the genius of his strategy. And so there you have it. The unlikely group that Jesus called to be his disciples. Small group, inner circle of three, but the priority focus of his ministry. I have a quote I want to share as well here. It comes from A.B. Bruce, who wrote the book, The Training of the Twelve, a fascinating book, uh, describing this process. And he said this, The truth is, that Jesus was obliged to be content with fishermen and publicans and quantum zealots for apostles. They were the best that could be had. Those who deemed themselves better were too proud to become disciples, thereby excluded themselves from all that the world now sees to be a high honor of being chosen princes of the kingdom. The civil and religious aristocracy boasted of their unbelief. The citizens of Jerusalem did feel for a moment interest in the zealous youth who had purged the temple with a whip of small cord, but their faith was superficial and their attitude patronizing. And so Jesus was obliged to fall back on the rustic but simple, sincere, let's make sure it advanced there, sincere and energetic men of Galilee. And he was quite content with his choice and devoutly thanked his father for giving him even such as they. Learning, rank, wealth, refinement, freely given up to his service. He would not have despised he would not have despised, but he preferred devoted men who had none of these advantages to undevoted men who had them all. And with good reason, for it mattered little except in the eyes of contemporary prejudice what the social position or even the previous history of the Twelve had been, provided they were spiritually qualified for the work to which they were called. Which tells ultimately, not what is without a man, but what is within. Do you catch the significance of this for you and I today? I think we need to quit saying to ourselves and to the Lord, I can't do anything. I don't have any significant talents. I'm a nobody. And instead ask, well, Lord, can you use, can you use me? Same goes for our congregation. What I learned from one of my professors in seminary 34 years ago came from this book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, and he simply said this, a small church may have exactly what is needed to change the world, a few, committed, a few committed men and women. Well, let's look for a bit at this one who was calling them. He was an awesome teacher and miracle worker. Multitudes pressed in on him to hear him teach. He had to sneak off and, and, and get rest at times. There was a great throng of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, and if you look on the map there, you can see Judea in the bigger letters down at the bottom. That's that reddish part there. And, and yeah, Jerusalem is in Judea there. Way up at the top, you see Galilee, and up above that, along the coast, is Tyre and Sidon. People were coming from all over those areas to hear him and to be healed of diseases. They, they tried to touch him. Power was coming out of him, healing people with just a touch. 
He was an amazing teacher and miracle worker. He also knew some things. He knew fishing, for instance, we see in this text. And he knew men's hearts and, and their futures. When you think of him knowing fishing, it's interesting. Simon Peter, who was raised as a fisherman and had been doing this all his life, one evening got skunked. And he'd fished all night and caught nothing. Peter must have thought, who do you think you are? A carpenter's son telling me a fisherman when and how to fish. But I'll put out the nets again if you say so and you're going to see. But the results were stunning to him and to his companions. And so great a catch that the nets began to break. And when he realized that, that Jesus knew better than him how to fish and could actually see where the fish were and even make them come into the net, it must have caused him to also realize what else Jesus knew and, and what power he had. He realized Jesus knew his heart. He knew everything that was in his heart, all the sin and corruption, the inner rebellion, the self-centeredness, and it overwhelmed him to think about it. And he cried out to Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But Jesus didn't leave Peter or give up on him. Instead, he called him, sinner that he knew he was, to be a leader in his church. And Jesus knew these guys' future. And we see here that he knew that in the future they would be catching men. Who was this one who knew all these things and who called them to follow him? He was the holy son of God uh, who would go to the cross to bring forgiveness of sin to save mankind. Uh, this is what he did for those 12 disciples and for the multitudes in that day. And he's done that for you and I as well. So how could the disciples that, that he chose not follow him, considering what they'd seen and heard and knew about him, how could you and I do anything less than that as well as we understand who this awesome one is, but give our lives to him as well? Well, we look today then at the disciples whom Jesus called. We're going to be looking at that more in the future weeks. And we've considered the one who called them. Just a couple other things I want to mention here. What was the calling itself and what were the results of Jesus calling them? Well, what were the 12 called to do? What are we called to do? Here's the calling. First of all, to follow him. That's what Jesus said he called many of the disciples to do. He's just said, follow me. Go where I go, learn from me, follow my example. And that's still our calling as well. That's what we seek to do here at Maranatha. Live lives that are caught up in learning from and, and living like Jesus and pointing others to him. And then we see that the calling involved catching men. And that's still a challenge, isn't it? Not all people want to be caught. Uh, not all see their need for a savior. And so we have this awesome job then of connecting people uh, where they're at and helping them to see spiritual reality, see that all of us are rebellious sinners who need a Savior and, and that we have come to know that Savior personally and that they too can come to know Him. And that calling is to make disciples. Followers of Jesus, yeah, but more than that, ones that surrender to His Lordship and ask Him to guide and direct our lives. Jesus in the Great Commission told the twelve and others gathered that day, as you're going, make disciples of all nations. And that's why we have this motto here at Maranatha, making disciples of Jesus Christ while we wait for his return. I want to just end with the results. It's kind of fascinating to think of this here. You know, Scripture clearly uh, reveals some of the steps that were involved um, in, in spreading the gospel and, and the growth of the Christian church around the world. 
But we also have other historical record that gives us even further information about some of this. Scripture reveals to us, for instance, that Peter and John became leaders of the mother church in Jerusalem. And though they were jailed and they were threatened, they continued to preach Christ. Peter traveled to encourage believers in Lydda, Joppa, and Caesarea. That wasn't real far away. And John later became a leader in the church at Ephesus. We know those things from Scripture. But there's tradition and historical record that tells us also about the other 12 and where they went. And you know, initially we might feel even a little skeptical about some of this information. Like me, you might wonder, well, is there really enough historical evidence to verify what happened after the New Testament book of Acts? However, one of the most substantial studies that has been done on this was by a man who, who visited the Middle East 27 times and then spent 10 years doing further research, tracing local histories and archeological evidence and so on as well. And he found that there is substantial documentation that leaves little question that within the lifetime of the apostles, the gospel of Christ had spread uh, far northwest places as even Gaul and Britain, south to Alexandria and Egypt and, and Carthage on the coast of Africa, northeast to Scythia and Armenia, which is part of the former Soviet Union, and southeast to Persia and India. Truly amazing to think of. Some records seem to indicate that sometime after Luke wrote the book of Acts, 12 disciples kind of divided up territory and went different directions. People I know who have spent time, for instance, in India, talk of statues that are there to St. Thomas, and people there that call themselves St. Thomas Christians. Tradition and significant historical record says that Andrew preached um, in what is of the southern part of Russia, and Peter went as far as, as Britain, and Philip was in Scythia and Parthia, James the Less to Spain, Thomas, as I mentioned, to Persia and India, Bartholomew also to India, and, and Matthew to Africa, and Thaddeus to Syria and Arabia, and Simon the Zealot to Mesopotamia. All but John are believed to have died martyrs' deaths. But before they did, it, it seems they turned the world of their day upside down with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know how that's still needed today. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we, we thank you for this uh, that is revealed in the Gospels, uh, an amazing account of, of your training of the 12 disciples. Many more that you impacted as well that followed you, but, but 12 that you spent time training to spread the Gospel far and wide. And, and Lord, I pray that as we meet in the weeks ahead, uh, you would teach us from that, your example, and from what you accomplished through those individuals and those who heard them, uh, that we too would be a part of spreading your gospel far and wide. Uh, give us ears to hear and learn that, Lord, in these weeks, and, and give us boldness to share that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.